us of the context that Brother Bobby read for us this morning. Such a wonderful example there in chapter 2 of Christ's example of humility. Where the very Lord of the universe stepped down from his throne and glory to live among the very least of his creation. Now Paul frames this in a context of exhortation to humility treating those around us as more important than ourselves. And he says to have this attitude in Christ that's on display in this passage. Do this like Christ. Be like Christ. He is our supreme example. But we often look for examples. There are many examples that uh, we look to, whether it's us as adults or our children, grandchildren. Some good, some bad. Unfortunately, there are a lot of bad examples out there. Uh, Many look up to certain public figures based on their fame or notoriety, their fortune. Not all are bad, but uh, many that would fit that category would include sports figures, uh, movie stars, politicians, that sort of thing. There are, of course, good examples we look to. uh, Those that are in public service, we often think of firemen and police officers and uh, teachers and the military, community volunteers. What about our pastors and missionaries? These should certainly be good examples for us to emulate and look up to. Of course, there are many worthy examples in the Bible as well, these very real men and women who have come and, and lived and recorded in Scripture for us, we need to remind our children and grandchildren and, of course, ourselves that these were real people and they, and they are worthy examples to follow. This includes the Apostle Paul himself. Even, in first, even he himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, follow my example. He says, imitate me as I Christ, as I imitate Christ. But there is a fundamental problem with good examples. Fundamental problem uh, with all examples except for one that we'll look at this morning. And uh, to help explain this, help set the the context, I'd like to share a quote that I've used before. It's a quote from a 1967 Newsweek. Okay? Newsweek magazine, 1967. It says, did you know that many people reading this page are doing so with the aid of bifocals. Their inventor, Benjamin Franklin, age 79. The presses that printed this page were powered by electricity. One of the first harnessers, Benjamin Franklin, age 40. Some are reading this on the campus of an Ivy League school. Their founder, Benjamin Franklin, age 45. Others in a library. Who founded the first library in America? Benjamin Franklin, age 25. Some got their copy through the U.S. mail. Its father, Benjamin Franklin, 31. Now think fire. Who started the first fire department? Invented the lightning rod. Designed a heating stove that's still in use today. Benjamin Franklin, age 31, 43, and 36. Had wit. He was a conversationalist, an economist, philosopher, diplomat. Favorite among capitals in Europe, journalist, printer, publisher, linguist. He spoke five languages. Advocate of paratroopers before planes from balloons. 
All this until age 84. And he had exactly two years of formal schooling. Very impressive, right? Makes you say, wow, isn't that great? It's incredible. Of course it is. It's, It's very inspiring. But it can also be a bit disconcerting as well. Mark Twain once said, Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Now you may be asking why Twain would make such a tongue-in-cheek statement. Maybe you already know. Don't good examples help us to work harder? Help us to reach higher? Well, yes and no. Good examples have one major problem. They have no power in themselves to enable us to reach those same goals. Admiration for a great person can inspire us, but using this example of Benjamin Franklin, there's nothing in his example that can make us, any of us, the inventor that he was. Unless that person can enter into our lives and can share their skills, we have no way of attaining those same heights or accomplishments. If this is true, then why did Paul exhort us to follow Christ's example? If such a goal is impossible, does that not set us up for failure? Well, if Christ only came to be a good example, if the whole reason for him coming and living among us was to be a good example, then we certainly have a problem. Certainly. There are those that view Christ in this way, that he was a wonderful example of how to live, example of love and peace. Many outside the church look to Christ's example as a good choice among many. A system of morals that can be applied to their lives in the hopes of being a better person in society. There are those in the church trying to follow Christ's lofty lofty example by basically faking it, merely cleaning up the outward appearance and and giving off a false impression. Uh, Perhaps they're really good at at following rules and and checking off a list every week, at least the list that, that they created themselves. But these are the people that are described as whitewashed tombs have dead dead men's bones inside because they've never been changed from the inside out. Unfortunately, I think you find both groups among those who are attempting to find or follow Christ's example merely frustrated. They're merely frustrating themselves by intensifying their efforts, trying harder to live exactly like Christ did. But this is precisely where Jesus is set apart from all other examples. Unlike other good examples, um, it takes more than perspiration and more than performance to follow Christ's example. It takes power. Power from the inside. Christ is our example, certainly. He's our supreme example, but he's much, much more than that. He is our Savior. He's a Redeemer. He's our great High Priest. This is what separates Christ from all others. He can enable us, enable us to be like Him. How does He do this? He does this through the Holy Spirit who dwells within His followers, the believers. It's through His strength alone that we are able to then walk in His footsteps, 
He is our example, yes. But he is also the means. He's the means to follow. So here's the key to remember. We do not become like Christ through merely imitation. But it's through incarnation. Not merely imitation, but incarnation. Paul says in Galatians 2.20 that Christ lives in me. So it's not merely imitation of Christ, but incarnation that we become like him. You see, the Christian life is more than just a series of ups and downs where we try really hard to be like Christ today and we do good so we're on a high and tomorrow we go to bed feeling like we're a failure so we're down that day. It's not about ups and downs. It's about grace. Our success is not measured by our works. Christianity is is not about reaching for the stars in the hopes that perhaps we might be able to reach the moon. No, it's by grace, and it's by grace how we grow into the image of Christ, and it's through his power, through his provision that we do so. So our Christian walk is, is not about ups and downs. It's about ins and outs. Not ups and downs, but ins and outs. God works in us first. He works in us, and we work out. Okay? Christ in us, allowing us to display this on the outside. And this is what I'm calling practical Christianity. Practical Christianity. It's practical because it's more than just theory. It's more than just doctrine. It's more than just knowledge. But a practical application of these truths in our lives. The study of the Bible, learning about Jesus, understanding biblical doctrine... Very, very important, but it should always lead to practical application. Or else it remains simply a, an empty academic exercise. So here in our text, Paul's saying that we are to do something. We're to do something. Verse 12, based on what he said before, he says, So then, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, you may already see where I'm going with this, but what does it mean to work out your salvation? Work out your salvation. Now, if you neglect the context, and the context of the Bible as a whole, you might assume that this supports some kind of idea of self-help salvation. Self-help, where we work for our salvation either in whole or in part. The verse doesn't say to work for your salvation. It doesn't say work toward your salvation or work at your salvation. In this view, even though this help, self-help sort of salvation, even though God is, uh, has his standard of 100% righteousness, very high standard, And he knows that humans will never attain that standard. He settles for 41% or 63%, some arbitrary number. Some people view these verses in in terms that uh, salvation is something that we can work towards. I mean, what's good enough? Is 77% good enough? Is 99.9% good enough? What if we only miss the goal by that fraction of a point? Is that good enough? We all miss the mark. Every single one of us. None of us gets 100%. 
So grace is not getting us the rest of the way. God doesn't come and say, hey, you've done a good job. I'm taking you the rest of the way. He takes us the whole way, all the way. It's by grace that we're saved. So this verse is saying that we are to work out our salvation, not for it. So who's working? Who's working? What are we talking about here? Well, first let's make the point that no one can work out their salvation until God has already worked in. Okay, this is the in and the out we've been saying. God works in so that we can work out. Okay? Uh, this is the outward signs and the fruit that is on display of that inward and already uh, performed change in our lives, the outward display, the things that don't earn our salvation in any way, but certainly validate it and confirm it. You know, we're meant to do good works. We're created to do good works. Have you ever noticed in the very familiar and loved passage, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that it speaks two different times about our works, the things we do. Okay? And I want us to notice uh, in, in these verses that there are two types of works here. Two types. First, uh, the verse says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, not of works, that is human working, so that no one can boast. Okay? So we are not saved by human works. These are worthless. We're saved through faith. It's a gift of God alone. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on. The verse continues. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, the result of God's working. Okay? These are the things where it says, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're not saved by works. We're not saved by works, but we certainly are saved for works, no doubt. We are created to do good works. God has, has even planned them out ahead of time. And they're nothing, they're worth nothing apart from God. The very power to do them comes from God working in us, through us. Verse 13 in our text says that it is God who is at work in you. He is at work. He is. As believers, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, empowering us to live right before God and to do His will on earth. That's what I, I mean when I say that we don't just follow Christ's example. We receive His empowerment. It's incarnation versus imitation. So what does this practical Christianity look like? Well, remember, I'm using the word practical here because I, I want to... Uh, re- let it remind us of our purpose. It's practical versus theoretical. A practice versus theory. What would be the point if you spent many years going to medical school, okay, you became a medical doctor, perhaps uh, you even went on beyond that and be- received a-, a Ph.D. in medicine to teach at university? What would be the point if you spent all that time and and uh, had all that learning and knowledge, but you never actually practiced medicine. Same for a lawyer that never practices law. Now, by the way, I'll admit that uh, it still disturbs me that doctors call it practicing when they cut you up and they remove things from your body. 
uh, and, and fill you with potentially dangerous drugs, but nevertheless, it is still called a practice, same as a law practice. And so the same applies for Christians. For the Christian, we learn, we study, we spend time in God's Word, we pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination, but it's all theory until we practice it. Or to use the, sermon, uh, the terminology of our text, until we work out our salvation. In fact, we can know how to be saved. We, we can know that the wages of sin is death. We can know that Jesus Christ died for those sins and never place our faith and trust in Jesus. It remains theory alone. We must act on that knowledge. And when we do, God renews us from the inside. So that true saving faith will manifest with spiritual fruit in our lives on the outside. God working in from the inside out. All right, so when we say to work out our salvation, again, who's working? God is. God is working. God's working inside so that we work out. And why does he do it? Verse 13 says he does it for his good pleasure. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why did he create us? Why did he put us where we're at? Why did he call us? Why did he save us? Why does he send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us? Why does he allow us to be a part of his redemptive plan? He does all things for his glory and for his pleasure. Does knowing this give you a healthy fear and respect of the Lord? Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so knowing that we serve a holy and just God should cause us to live with this healthy level of fear and trembling as our verses say here today. Okay, so as we work out the salvation that God provides and as God empowers, what will this look like? What, what should be our practice? Well, let, let's follow on Paul's thought here in the next couple of verses. And we'll just quickly identify three points that he makes in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So we are to first and foremost be submissive to God. We are to have this same attitude that Christ had, this submissiveness. And when we do, it will reflect in our lives uh, of having lives without complaining or arguing or grumbling, like Paul says here. We accept where we are. We accept where God has placed us, what God has given us. And we do this with joy. And we, we do this with an understanding that everything is from him in the first place. You know, when we think of grumbling, we often, or we should, often think of the Israelites as, as they were freed from Egypt and they found themselves wandering through the wilderness. They, they complained that they were in Egypt, they complained that they were in bondage, and God miraculously frees them from that bondage. And what happens? They complain when they went out. They complain that uh, although they, all their needs were being met, they were manna, manna from heaven, that uh, they complained on the lack of variety of food. Brought us out of Egypt for what? To starve. 
40 years. They never reached the promised land. Those that grumbled. Those that disobeyed and had, had that lack of faith. Many of us are like that. God blesses us, and there's, there's always something that we don't like about it. We always want more. We have to get this... We have to get out of the idea and this habit of complaining when God has, uh, he asks us to do things a certain way and to live within certain circumstances. We just obey. We're submissive to God. we submissive to whatever he has for us and be thankful for his grace. We're also to be blameless before God. Children of God, above reproach, it says, living blameless before God doesn't mean that we will stop sinning. Certainly. Real sanctification lies in the increasing knowledge of how sinful we are. It means that our lives will be lived down in the sight of God in such a way that they will be an open book before him and that we recognize that they are. Of course, uh, they are whether we, we acknowledge that or not. That's the point. We live open before God. The problem is that when we have unconfessed sin... And that unconfessed sin stands as a barrier between us and God. When we live our lives working out our salvation with fear and and trembling through constant prayer and Bible study, and we seek to draw near to God, and then uh, we confess our sins and we remove those barriers that are there, we're able to, to pray as David prayed in Psalm 139. He says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offense, any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's living a life that's blameless before God, open. Can we say that prayer earnestly? Next, we are to be blameless before other people. Paul says to be blameless and innocent, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and be lights in the world. Remember, this is practical Christianity. We work out our salvation knowing that people are watching us to see if our lives match up with our beliefs. I think of Daniel. He lived in the the midst of an ungodly Babylon. And he didn't live off in the corner somewhere. He lived there in the king's palace. When his enemies tried to do away with him, the only thing that they could find against him was the very fact that he worshipped Jehovah God. In fact, they had a, uh, made a technicality in the law to cause him to break it. And when Daniel continued to pray to God and, and to worship him, according to his own convictions, the thing he had done his whole life, he was thrown into the, di- into the lion's den. Only for his worship of his Lord. His enemies had said, we will never, we will never find any basis for charges against this man unless there's something to do with the law of his God. What a wonderful testimony to Daniel. He lived without blame, and he did so before others, and God delivered him. So our goal must be the same. Can men find fault with us? Are you completely honest and beyond reproach in your dealings in business or in your personal relations. Men will always look for an excuse 
to not believe and to deny the truth of the gospel. But we cannot let them find their excuse in the way we live. Many people are turned away by hypocritical Christians, those that live life of a Christian in name only. Please let it not be said of us. Only when we live blameless before God and blameless before others can we be those lights in a very dark world that we're called to be. So, if you're here this morning and you're trying to be a good person, you're trying. You're trying to follow a, a good Christian example or perhaps you're, you're trying to be like Christ. I would certainly encourage you in that. Press on. But I, I also want you to remember that Christ didn't come to earth just to be a good example. His life is not just a good example to follow. There are many that fit that category. Many other religions try to fit that category. No. Christ came to do what you and I could never do. He came and, and he lived, and because of his perfect life, living the life that we could never live, his perfect sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. He took the punishment of our sins, the punishment that we deserved. It's because of this that we can please God and we can live blameless before him. But it's only if we are in Christ. God has to work in us in order for us to work out our salvation. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then repent. Nothing more complicated than repenting of those sins and believing, trusting in Him. Confess your sins, and He is faithful to forgive you, and He will give you the power to live righteously. But it will be because of His works, not ours. If you've already done so, if God has created his supernatural work inside you, then you are no longer whitewashed tombs. I would encourage you to, to take these words to heart and, and go out of this place and work out your salvation in Christ's power. Remember, the challenge is to follow Christ's example of humbleness and submissiveness and obedience, but we don't do it with our own power. God gives us the ability Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, says, Paul says, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So, life is not a series of disappointing ups and downs. It's, it's a sequence of delightful ins and outs. God works in. We work out. The example comes from Christ. The energy and the empowerment comes from the Holy Spirit. And the result is joy. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for that supreme example of humbleness and submissiveness that you gave us. We thank you for, despite the fact that you're the Lord of the universe, you left your throne to live among your low creation. You died a, a sinner's death on the cross, a death and atonement on our behalf, Lord. And we just thank you so much for your grace and mercy displayed there. We thank you that our salvation is not up to us following that example, but, but uh, viewing that example and knowing our deficiency 
and how we so uh, desperately need your salvation that we can come to you through grace, faith, trust in what you've already done. Lord, we just pray that if anyone here, anyone we know today, throughout this week, doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that uh, we can can be there and help answer questions and direct them to your finished work on the cross on their behalf. Lord, we just pray that today will be the day of their salvation, and we just pray that you will continue to use us to help grow your kingdom through the spreading of your gospel. Lord, we want to live uh, spirit-empowered lives. We want to do so to your honor and your glory. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.